Hello and welcome to Leanne Ward Nutrition, a podcast where you will find expert advice on all things health and nutrition related. Each week, we will discuss my three niche areas of gut health, emotional eating and sustainable fat loss. My hope for this podcast is to cut through the BS online and show you real, practical and evidence-based messages around nutrition so you can live your best life day in and day out. So sit tight, buckle up, and let's get started on today's podcast. Welcome back to the Leanne Ward Nutrition Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by my brand new business, Lean Green Living. Lean Green Living is a growing range of sustainable health and wellness products designed and owned by myself. I am so proud of this new business and its focus on environmentally friendly alternatives to household and kitchen staples. At the moment, I have four amazing products available for purchase at Lean Green Living. They are my eco-friendly beeswax food wraps, my 100% organic cotton reusable tote shopping bags, my daily health planners, and my weekly meal planners. All these items are available worldwide through my website, and if you have an Amazon Prime account, you may be eligible for free shipping through Amazon. Please head to www.leangreenliving.com.au for more information and purchases. I'm super stoked to bring you today's podcast on fermenting food and evidence-based gut health with microbiologist Caitlin Benley. Caitlin specializes in food microbiology and food safety. She has a Bachelor of Science in Microbiology from Louisiana State University and serves as a CEO and head of food safety for her own fermentation company, Cultured Guru, which she co-owns with her partner, John. The mission of Cultured Guru is to make microbiome health accessible to all by educating people about microorganisms, food science, and microbial fermentation. On today's podcast, Caitlin and I start off by talking about exactly what good gut health means and why she's so passionate about it. We chat about the things our listeners can do to achieve good gut health and learn to nourish their gut microorganisms from a nutrition and lifestyle perspective. We also quickly touch on probiotics. Caitlin then explains to us exactly what fermentation science is and what fermented foods are. We talk about food safety with fermented foods and some tips she has for how to ferment your own foods safely at home. If you'd like to know more about Caitlin, please follow her on Instagram. She is at cultured.guru or head to her website, which is cultured.guru. And I will link her Cultured Guru School of Fermentation program waitlist in our show notes for you guys. Let's jump into today's podcast with Caitlin, all about fermented foods and gut health. Welcome, Caitlin, to the podcast today. We're so excited to have you on chatting all things gut health and fermenting foods. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I love your platform, so I'm really excited to be a part of your podcast. Um, You want me to tell everyone a little bit about myself? Yeah, yeah, I think that would be wonderful. I love to start off the podcast by sort of asking our guests how they got into um, the field that they're working in and almost just tell us a little bit more about um, like what you do on a day-to-day basis because being a microbiologist, it's a cool fancy term. So I'm not sure our listeners at home and even myself would understand um, sort of the different things that you do on a day-to-day basis. Okay, so I'm Caitlin and I own my own fermentation education business and fermented foods company called Culture Guru. Um, I love fermentation 
fermentation mainly because I love microbes and I'm fascinated by microorganisms. And that all began while pursuing my degree in microbiology at Louisiana State University. Um, So I graduated from LSU with my bachelor's degree in microbiology in 2014. Uh, Afterwards, the job market was kind of slim pickings. Uh, So I decided to try out starting my own company, Fermenting Foods. Um, While in college, I really fell in love with food microbiology and food science and the study of the microorganisms involved in creating all kinds of different food products. Um, I'm kind of a naturalist and I love healthy eating. So it was a mashup of my two favorite worlds. Um, Yeah, so it's, it's really fun. And for Day to day, I mainly write a lot. So I write a lot of blogs right now. Um, We're kind of trying to grow the education side of what we do. Mm -hmm. Um, And that involves a lot of recipe development. So I do a lot of fermentation recipe tests for that. And apart from that, I serve as the head of food safety and preventive controls for our fermentation company. So I do a lot of microbiological testing on our food products to ensure they're safe and perfectly fermented. Wonderful. And I can imagine at uni sort of being in your dorm room, being like this little mad scientist experimenting in your room with your (laughs) fermentation and that sort of thing. Have you always (laughs) been fermenting foods like from sort of your earlier sort of teen years or was that something that you sort of picked up during your university degree? It was definitely something I picked up during during university. Um, Mm. I started growing my own vegetables on my little apartment patio and I grew cabbage and I would try to ferment it. And um, It's really interesting because I didn't even know there was this whole blogosphere, Mm. basically, on the internet of um, fermentation enthusiasts. I was introduced to fermentation through science. And so I had a completely different perspective on the food. I was doing it for the microbes and I wanted to ferment for the microbes and to look at things microscopically and, and watch the process of fermentation through kind of like a lens of my passion of microbiology. And that's kind of when I decided to start a blog about it because it, my perspective felt unique. Yeah, hundred percent. I'm so excited that you're on the podcast today. I've got so many questions to ask you about fermentation, but let's start, I guess, first with gut health and the basics. Okay. Um, I guess good gut health means something different to everybody. So I would love to know if somebody says, Caitlin, what does good gut health mean to you and why are you so passionate about it? So yes, I think gut health means something different for everyone based on lifestyle, education, background. Everyone kind of has a different perspective on what gut health means and how to live a gut healthy lifestyle. But uh, I would say for me, it means focusing and catering on to the microbes. Uh, if, if you're looking for gut health, then you're looking for a healthy gut microbiome. And in order to achieve that, you have to cater to the microbes and their needs. Um, we've lived in an anthropocentric world for a very long time. And what that means is it's human centered, human focused, and everything is about humans. And when you're talking about gut health, yes, microbes live in our gut. So it is connected to humans, but it's about the microbes. Um, so it's not necessarily about what you like to eat or what you enjoy eating or taking, say, a probiotic pill for gut health. It's about what are you putting in your body and what, what do those foods and those substances do to the microbes? Do they like it? Do they metabolize it? How do they metabolize it? What do they produce when they metabolize the foods that you eat? 
Um, those are the things I think about when I'm trying to live a gut healthy lifestyle, um, eat for gut health, uh, and those types of things. So I think the first step to gut health and um, what it means to me is just making sure you have a microbe centered perspective on your body instead of a, a human centered perspective. And that's kind of weird to wrap your head around, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I love that. And I've also heard um, so many experts in the field sort of talk about even, um, you know, letting our children, for example, um, you know, play in the dirt and come into contact with different animals and that sort of thing. And because all of those things have microbes, which are healthy for our bodies and our own gut health as well. So is that what you sort of mean by when you say focus on and center on the microbes rather than just what we're eating and what we're putting into our body as well? Absolutely. Um, a lot of people contact me and ask me about uh, probiotics for babies and how to foster a good microbiome for infants and children. Mm -hmm. And the first thing I tell them is make sure they're getting outside play. Um, they're playing in the dirt. Maybe start a home garden or something like that. Um, essentially, all the microbes that live in your gut originated from the soil, from the foods we eat, which are grown in the soil or should be. Um, <laughs> yeah. And and yeah, I think um, I think having that holistic perspective that you're an ecosystem, um, and that ecosystem lives inside of you and outside of you, and basically everything you encounter, um, everything you do will impact the microbes in and on your body. Yeah, so fascinating. I could ask you so many more questions here, but I'm going to give it more what I feel like our listeners would benefit from you the most. So I read this quote on your website and I absolutely love it. And it completely resonated with me. It said, there's no such thing as a pill for gut health. So we educate our readers about the only tool available to achieve total microbiome health, which is real food. So I'd love you to, again, explain for our listeners why taking something like just a quick probiotic every day or like a gut health powder. Um, you know, there's so many things marketed online these days, like heal your gut with this powder, take this probiotic powder. Why isn't that going to heal our gut long-term? Why isn't the one simple thing that we can quickly take each morning what our gut and our body actually needs when it comes to long-term gut health? So this is kind of a long explanation, uh, but when I'm through, it'll, it'll, I think, click for a lot of people. Wonderful. So generally, something like a probiotic pill is best as a prescription from your doctor. So the pills that are going to work and serve a purpose um, are usually pills that are targeted to treat some sort of ailment or disease or side effect of antibiotic usage. So my opinion is to leave the pills for prescriptions and for medical need. Um, probiotic pills aren't going to do anything if your diet is lacking in the nutrients and the fiber that the right microbes need to survive in your gut. So a, a lot of that pill marketing, it's, it, it markets probiotic pills as a magic fix. Like you can keep eating your pizza and every single night, pizza's fine, but you can keep eating um, fast food and drinking uh, sodas and eating ice cream every night. Just take this pill. It'll fix you. And that's the wrong attitude to have. I would say that the, the most important thing for people to understand in the, the pills versus food debate, because unfortunately it is a debate, um, is that the... The industry far exceeds the science. So the pill industry is growing at a much faster rate than science is being published on what these pills actually do for gut health and the gut microbiome. 
We know that microbes thrive in rich ecosystems, right? That's what your microbiome is. So it's not about one specific species. And the thing about pills, um, these generic pills that you can buy off the internet, not the prescription ones, it's the way that they're made. So when you make a probiotic pill, essentially what these manufacturers do is they grow isolated single species of microorganisms in large vats. So these microbes are not in ecosystems. Um, these microbes live their whole lives and their whole generations of microbes without being in contact with other species or a rich ecosystem. I think this is the most important part to understanding why pills may be a waste of money. Uh, when you take a pill that contains microbes that are not adapt to survive in these ecosystems like you would find in the soil or on vegetables or in fermented vegetables, they're not adapt to, to make it through your digestive journey, number one. And if they do make it there because of some new proprietary technology or something, they're going to arrive to your gut microbiome and have basically no experience living in the rich ecosystem. So these microbes have only lived with their own species, and we're expecting them to set up camp and establish themselves as part of our microbiome. And it's just not really the way things work. Um, I like to use analogies when, uh, <laughs> when teaching people about these things. So the one that I like the most probably is the dog park analogy. Mm -hmm. um, if you have an unsocialized dog, a dog that's never met other dogs, and you bring that dog to the dog park, one of two things is going to happen. Either that dog is going to fight the other dogs for his face, or that dog is going to cower in the corner until it gets the opportunity to leave because it's not been socialized. It's not adapted to, to live and interact with other organisms. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So... Lastly, a lot of scientists have concerns about the um, genetic modification of these species of bacteria that are included in probiotic pills. Um, there's a lot of proprietary marketing that happens with probiotic pills. And what that means usually is that the species included in the pill have genetic code that's been inserted into their DNA. And usually this could be from a different bacteria or it's completely artificial in order to make that species just different enough for companies to patent it. Mm -hmm. And that's what I mean, I guess, by the industry is far exceeding the science yet again, because we don't know the repercussions of doing that. And that's never good. Mm. Definitely. Again, so many questions I have to ask you there. But again, it's like it's like a billion dollar industry, isn't it? And then when it we is. think about published research and that sort of thing, you know, a new study might come out, but it's kind of like that's five, 10 years old already. By the right. time that it comes to print and people pick it up and we start to understand that, isn't it? Like, as you said, it's just, we just don't have really the science to keep up with this multi, like this billion dollar sort of pharmaceutical industry, do we? No, no. And, and when the science doesn't know the repercussions of what we're doing in the industry, especially when it involves microbes, mm. we usually end up in a bad place. For instance, the last time um, the pharmaceutical industry really exploited microorganisms for, for gain, we ended up with antibiotic resistance. Mm -hmm. um, so when dealing with microbes, we need to stay microbe focused, not human focused. And I think these, these quick fix pills, these probiotic pills, this marketing for the sake of money and monetary gain is not being responsible with the living organisms in our bodies and in our world. 
Mm, definitely. And I guess I get contacted by so many people who say, you know, I have the same stance around, you know, probiotic use and quick fix gut, you know, magic powders as you do. Like I'm very much build the healthy foundation first, but a lot of people contact me and say, you know, I'm too busy to do that or I can't do that, but I took this probiotic and it made me feel better. Are you in this sort of mindset that I always tend to think, well, a lot of the times it's probably a placebo because you're taking something you automatically feel better or often because somebody, you know, people start one thing, they also change a few other things in their diet as well. They start sleeping better, they eat a few more plants and fibers, and that sort of makes them feel a little bit better as well. So overall, if you had to sort of pick a stance on probiotics, would you say that you're, um, you know, sort of happy if people take them because they sort of do no harm? Or would you much rather just sort of say, leave that to the doctors and prescription only, and really build a healthy foundation with, with plants first? I would say leave it to the doctors and prescription only until the science can catch up. Um, I would say until we have those published papers that verify taking um, these huge quantities of isolated strains of microorganisms or genetically modified strains of microorganisms, until that's proven safe and proven effective, um, I think there's much better ways to incorporate probiotics into your diet with things like fermented foods or simply eating you know, a plethora of plants. Um, with fermented foods and plants, people have been consuming these things since since the beginning, really. So, so time proves it. You know, time proves the safety of these things and the accessibility of it. And it's just probably a safer choice. Um, and speaking as a science-minded person, I just can't really personally ingest something that I don't know is safe. Um, that I know someone may have genetically tampered with or when I know there's better options for my gut health. Mm, definitely. And that also reminds me very much of, I remember going through university, one of the first things we learned was, you know, get your vitamins and minerals from food. And again, the pharmaceutical industry loves to tell us that if we're lucky in energy, we should be taking B vitamins. And I always say to my clients, no, we should be going to bed earlier if we don't have enough energy or we should be working with our diet because we just don't know what taking high levels of, you know, B vitamins and vitamin A and that sort of thing can do to us long-term. And in the research and in the studies, they've tested, you know, food, the vitamins and minerals in food versus the vitamins and minerals in pills and powders and, you know, tablets. And they just, they have different effects within the human body. A tablet, a vitamin is not the same as eating that from food. It doesn't sort of perform the same way within the body and it can be unsafe taking them at huge loads. So again, you know, people just love to want to take a pill or a powder to make them feel better without, I guess, doing that hard work to build that healthy foundation through diet and lifestyle instead. Right. And I think you're, you know, you're making great points that kind of tie into what we just talked about. You know, when you remove one uh, nutrient or one vitamin from a plant and mass produce it and shove it into a pill, you're kind of, you're kind of destroying the point. Um, these things are meant to be consumed as a whole and with other substances. So um, let's say eating a cabbage is going to provide you with a lot of different nutrients all at once. It's almost like the same thing as consuming microbes that are a part of an ecosystem and from nature versus one isolated species all by itself. Um, so I think, I think the thing is a holistic view, you know, eat the, eat the vegetable, eat the fermented vegetable, and maybe, maybe try and stay away from really clever marketing. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And, and as you mentioned, like high, high doses of things, because I think we automatically think like, oh, this probiotic powder has 
you know, 50 billion, um, you know, live organisms. And of course that has to be better for me. Like we almost live in this world where bigger is better. And I think sometimes we just forget that that's not necessarily always the case, is it? No, no. And I mean, I see this a lot in the business world too. Um, people think endless growth and the, the endless pursuit of more and more and more is where you meet successful results. And that's not always the case. It's oftentimes not the case. Um, a lot of a lot of times, you meet your detriment by trying to just get more and more and more. And I think the same thing can be applied to to gut health for sure. Mm, definitely, yeah. Burnout in businesses is, is a real thing. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> now uh, we've been talking a little bit about plants and nutrition and that sort of thing. So the latest research within the nutrition space in gut health is very much aiming for a diversity of plants. And we sort of had this little tagline that you know dietitians, doctors, and that sort of thing are sort of saying aim for thirty different types of plants a week, and that involves you know fibers, whole grains, nuts and seeds, that sort of thing. As a microbiologist specializing in this gut health space, do you support this concept of of, um, I guess, plant-based diversity and consumption every week? Oh, absolutely. I absolutely support this. So eating a plethora of plants each week leads to gut species richness. Um, so a lot of times people get confused between diversity and richness when talking about microbial ecology, which is all about your gut microbiome and all the microbes of the world. Species richness is more about the different types of species present, and diversity is the evenness of species. So whilst richness is, um, is basically the indicator of a greater number of species present in your microbiome, and that's directly correlated to the richness of all the types of vegetables you're eating. Um, the more different types of substrates you can provide to your microbiome, the more different types of microbes are going to thrive. Um, I, I really like this question, and I think it's a great question because in fermentation, uh, what vegetables and ingredients are used in certain fermentation recipes influences which microbes are present at the end of fermentation. So essentially the same thing that would happen in a fermentation jar by adding a bunch of different types of vegetables maybe to one fermentation recipe, the same thing occurs in your gut. The more types of vegetables, the more types of microbes end up in your gut microbiome. Um, and this is going to be the most important part to gut health because microbes need food too. So what you're feeding them encourages them to stay and reside in your gut microbiome. Um, so if you can keep up that eating of a diversity of plants and about 30 different plants a week, then you can maintain your healthy gut microbiome. Wonderful. And I'm sure that there might be a, a few listeners at home who are sort of thinking, oh, this seems very overwhelming. Like I want to do everything I can to support my gut, but maybe I'm a little bit overwhelmed. So if you had a top sort of two to three easy tips for our listeners at home to almost nourish their gut health, what would be your sort of one, two, three top areas that they could start with that are, um, you know, quite simple things to do if they're not really up to, um, you know, fermenting their own veggies, or maybe they don't eat a lot of vegetables, they're, they're fussy eating, or they've got, you know, five kids in the house, they're very busy. What would be your top um, few simple tips to help them to nourish their gut microbiome? So the great thing about the diversity of plants is that it doesn't always have to be, you know, green vegetables that kids might hate. It doesn't have to just be broccoli and kale and salads. Um, you can also find a great diversity in your diet through eating different whole grains. So you can eat oats. Um, you can eat barley, farro. Try wild rice instead of white rice. That alone is introducing a lot of different substrates that will grow a lot of different microbes in your gut microbiome. 
that. And then I would say definitely try sneaking fruits and vet, um, well, duh, fruits, but <laughs> try sneaking vegetables into smoothies, you know, add, add some bland vegetables like a, a zucchini mm-hmm. or something into maybe a chocolate smoothie recipe for kids. Um, there's a lot of ways to to kind of sneak these vegetables into recipes without having to feel like, you know, you're eating some huge salad of raw vegetables. Um, other than that, definitely drink water. Um, hydration is also key to a healthy gut microbiome. So I suggest things like lemon water to make it fun. Um, mainly just stay hydrated. I love even adding um, different types of herbs to my water. So I really made a big effort this year to grow my herb gardens. I have, I'm terrible with my garden. <laughs> my partner does most of it because everything ends up dead. Even the plants in my office, he's like, have you watered them lately? And he comes in and waters them all. I'm terrible. <laughs> but even um, my different types of herbs, like sometimes I'll add a few, um, you know, mint leaves with a, a slice of orange, or I might add a little bit of rosemary and some blueberries. There are some wonderful combinations that you can just change the the taste of your water, even just a little bit if you're not somebody, if you're listening at home who loves the taste of water, adding different types of fruits and herbs into your water um, is, is yeah, delicious as well. <laughs> and it's kind of like encouragement to try something new. You're like, maybe I'll try lime in my water today, or I like to add a splash of cranberry juice to my water. So it's like cranberry flavored water. It's super simple. You don't have to juice anything or squeeze a lime. And there's a lot of fun ways to stay hydrated. Yeah, love it. Um, and then I guess deep diving more into this fermentation space, which I know that um, you absolutely love. It's such a buzzword of late, you know, fermentation. Can you explain to our listeners at home, I guess, the basics of what is fermentation science and what exactly are fermented foods? Because I'm sure there's some people listening at home who go, you know, I've heard that term a hundred times, but I don't actually know what that is. Oh, definitely. And especially um, here in America, it's a very new type of food. So fermentation science is also called food microbiology. And both are the study of the organisms involved in fermenting foods. Um, So essentially, fermentation science is just a full grasp on how you get from raw ingredients to an end product that is basically a preserved, in need of a better word, superfood. Fermented foods uh, are just transformed, basically, and uh, the main benefit of fermented foods uh, is bioavailability of nutrients and preservation. So it's it's good for long-term storage of vegetables without having to add chemical preservatives or um, completely altering and processing the foods. It, I like to think of it as pre-digestion. Um, so the same microbes you want living in your gut are fostered through different types of fermentation processes. And it's almost like you have a little bit of digestion happening outside of your body. So fermentation can be good for people who have digestive issues um, or maybe need just like easier to digest beans. So you could do things like tempeh, miso, um, or easier to digest cruciferous vegetables like cabbages. You have sauerkrauts and kimchi. It's just a kind of a nutritious way to preserve and process your food with minimal ingredients. And then you also get the added benefits of probiotic bacteria if it's fermented correctly. Wonderful. And then my next question probably is, how do we make fermented foods? (laughs) So that's a big question uh, because there's a lot of different types of fermentation and they're all fascinating and unique. So I like to classify them into five main categories, and that's wild fermented vegetables, wild heirloom culturing, yogurts and kefirs, 
beans and fungal fermentations, and then sourdough and fermented grains. So all of these can employ different categories of microorganisms um, in order to achieve the end product. Wow, I love that. (laughs) Yeah, and like we could go into detail about all of them, but then we'd probably be here all day. Yeah, Each one's vastly different. And you mentioned sourdough and fermented grains. Sourdough is one of my favorite foods in the whole world. What what else would you classify as fermented grains? Um, so tempeh, tempeh could be grains. Okay. Um, so tempeh is usually a, a mass of beans and grains that's fermented using a fungal starter culture. Mm-hmm. Generally, that's the only uh, grains that I ferment. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you, you can add grains into things like miso too. Um, and you can even add grains into sourdough. So you can do, um, they call it like a, adding a porridge into uh, a sourdough bread recipe. So you kind of fold and incorporate uh, almost overly cooked rice or uh, quinoa mm-hmm. or something into breads. And um, they ferment just as well as long as you have that good starter culture, like a sourdough starter. Yeah. Oh, fascinating. I love podcasting. I learn something new all the time. (laughs) I know you must learn something new like every day. I love it. And people are like, whose podcast do you listen to? I listen to my own. I literally, I love hearing the experts on my podcast go back and listen to them again. I'm like, oh, I just learned something new again. It's wonderful. (laughs) Have you done so many that you'll go back and you're like, oh, I forgot I learned that. Yeah. And then sometimes when I'm in the moment having conversations, like, yeah, it sinks in. But then going back and listening again, I'm like, I don't even remember talking about that. I think also because I'm always constantly trying to think of the next question and what else I could sort of grab out of the conversation. So oh, sometimes sure. I love going back and listening. I'm like, that was that was a great conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Now, when we think about fermented foods, are there any that are, I guess, like better for our gut health? Obviously, we want this rich diversity of plants, but plants aren't just vegetables. I think a lot of people think plants are, I've got to eat 30 different types of vegetables, but we forget that there can be fruits, it can be um, different types of whole grains, nuts, seeds, that sort of thing. So are there any, I guess, better types of fermented foods or are there any that are, I guess, easier to do if you're a a newbie fermenter at home like myself? (laughs) Definitely. Um, So I say cabbage ferments are by far the best. So that's going to be your sauerkrauts and kimchi. Um, Cabbage, raw cabbage is loaded with so many beneficial compounds and all those compounds become more bioavailable through the fermentation process. So each microbe involved in the process has different metabolic processes that break down different compounds and make things like GABA and melatonin and polyphenols uh, bioavailable. And I think cabbage is probably the easiest starting place because the microbiome on a raw cabbage is quite frankly the best for fermentation. Um, So people, if they're trying fermented foods or making them at home for the first time, that's definitely the place to start because it probably has the highest chance of success. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's very easy. It's just, if you want to make a simple sauerkraut, you know, three ingredients, cabbage, salt, and water, and you're on your way. Um, So I definitely suggest starting there just because, you know, if you're venturing into fermentation for the first time, you want to be successful at it the first time so you can stick to it. Second, I'd say other fermented vegetables are going to be best, Um, things like pickles. So a fermented uh, cucumber pickle is delicious and provides a lot of the same nutrients as cabbage, sometimes even more because, you know, they have that nice green skin on the outside. There's a lot of phytonutrients available. Third, I would say for like a balanced, well-rounded fermentation experience to try things like tempeh and miso. Um, Those are our protein sources as well, especially if they're made with things like soybeans or lentils. 
Um, so you kind of get a plethora of different microbes, different bioavailable nutrients when you ferment and consume a lot of different types of fermented plants, like you said, because not everything is a green leafy vegetable. You have a lot of fun fermented grains and beans too. Yeah, wonderful. And they can safely be included in a healthy um, lifestyle as well. I know there's this big, you know, um, some people online saying, you know, don't eat carbohydrates, don't eat grains and that sort of thing. But I'm sure we have debunked that myth on this podcast many a time that whole food carbohydrates are wonderful additions to a healthy diet and also a healthy gut health as well. (laughs) Oh, definitely. Definitely. Your your gut, the good gut microbes surely love to eat whole grains and fiber rich carbohydrates. Love hearing that from an expert such as yourself as well. (laughs) Now, when we think about, I think, food safety, personally, myself, that's the one biggest thing that's held me back from doing, you know, lots of um, home fermenting and that sort of thing. Like, I think I'm just worried that I don't know if I'll get it right. And then if I'll sort of make myself sick if I don't. And then also having said that, I'm like, there's no use by date or best before date on that. You know, I don't know if it'll go off or what it's supposed to taste like or that sort of thing. So I must admit, I spend an absorbent amount of money on um, fermented foods. You know, I spent, I think, $15 for a tiny jar of sauerkraut the other day, but I really would love to learn to do this at home. But how do we ensure food safety when we are fermenting our own foods at home? Because because to be honest, I think it's probably the biggest thing that holds most people back, um, just like myself. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, on the internet, well, kind of in the fermentation sphere, I'm known as the the queen of food safety, probably. I'm, I'm pretty much the only person who talks about food safety around fermentation because there's, there's just a lot of misinformation surrounding it that it's a um, forgiving process and mm. it's really not. Um, so my experience is that so many people email me expressing the same fears you have. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times it's the same story. Uh, they've usually tried a random recipe they found on Google or um, in a book they checked out from the library and either their fermentation project tasted horrible or it grew mold or it made them maybe have itchy eyes and a scratchy throat after eating it. So you have people who are scared to even get started mm-hmm. um, from stories like this or people who have experienced it and now they're like, heck no, I'm not even eating sauerkraut again. I'll just take a pill. And that's not that's not good. Um, So the problem with this is that there's a lot of Americanized, irresponsibly culturally appropriated recipes, um, mainly originating in America, um, that give (laughs) fermentation kind of a scary and bad reputation for a lot of people. So I find that the best way to remove these fears that you and a lot of other people have is with thorough education. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of times I help people understand the microbes and how to cater to the microbes in the fermentation process. And when you do that, you master fermentation because you're not fermenting anything microbes are fermenting. You just have to set the microbes up for success. And so my teachings and and my blog is kind of a science nerd, microbe-centered approach to fermenting. And through that, I'm able to remove people's fears because they feel like they they grasp all the mystery of fermentation. Um, There's a lot of like, it's magic and (laughs) there's so many mysteries and it's an art. But it's a science and we can understand it fully and we can control the microbes if we give them the tools they need to successfully ferment our fermentation projects at home. So I always tell people really seriously, all you have to do when specifically fermenting vegetables at home uh, is to weigh the ingredients. Um, This is how you create a specific salt concentration that the desired microbes like 
and the unwanted microbes die in. So you kind of want to manipulate certain parameters in fermentation to ensure that only the microbes you want, the desirable microbes, thrive. And the first step to doing that is with a salt concentration. Um, you can only figure out a salt concentration by weighing your ingredients um, because sodium chloride is an ionic compound, you know, two elements on the periodic table come together to make salt and those things have density. So in order to make a concentration of salt, um, you just have to weigh your ingredients. Um, and that's pretty simple. A lot of people in other countries already weigh most of their ingredients for things like baking to get things exactly right. So it's really an easy thing to adopt in your kitchen. Um, and food scales are not very expensive. I mean, you can pick one up here from various stores from anywhere between 5 and $14. Um, so that's my first suggestion. And then the other thing you can focus on to make sure you're doing it right is to make sure you're fermenting for the right amount of time. So most fermentation projects with um, vegetables specifically um, take between 14 and 21 days to allow for the ideal microbial metabolism to take place. So if you want all the good compounds in fermented foods like GABA, melatonin, polyphenols, um, all that good stuff, the good probiotic bacteria, um, then you want to give the microbes time to do their work. And that time frame is usually 14 to 21 days. Wonderful. Kitchen scales, tick, patience, tick. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> We're well on our way. <laughs> yeah, you need a kitchen scale and some patience. <laughs> now, you mentioned something really important and that, you know, a lot of people will have a bad experience, I guess, with fermentation because they read something on the internet or they've checked a book out of the library. And I think that it's so important to follow people such as yourself who understand microbes and food safety because anybody can write a blog. And in fact, anybody can write a book. And just because it's in your library, doesn't mean that it's safe. Like it's a safe recipe. You know what I mean? Like you can self-publish your own book. Anybody, a 12-year-old can write a blog. Um, so I think being mindful of the people that we follow in terms of this fermented foods and science space is incredibly important as well, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Um, so I usually tell people um, the first step to knowing uh, if you're going to ferment something correctly or make sure you're safe is to verify your source. So if you happen upon a blog, maybe go to the About tab on their blog and see their educational background and ask yourself questions like, why is this person qualified to be teaching me about a microbially made food product? Um, where did this person derive their education from? Um, are they actually an expert? Because like you said, anyone can publish a book. Um, there are a lot of books that are not credible and <laughs> um, written for fun. And I just, I just think when it's something uh, that you're going to be doing for your gut health especially, um, so a lot of people want to venture into fermentation to foster or a healthy microbiome, then you should make sure you're doing it in the healthiest way possible. And that starts with making sure you're learning from someone who knows what they're talking about. 100%. Yeah. Like food bloggings, you know, one thing if you're a mum making scones in her kitchen and then actually learning to ferment vegetables and other foods properly is, is a whole nother realm, isn't it? <laughs> right, right. You're eating raw microbes. So there's no, um, what is called in food safety is a kill step. So in something like sourdough, you know, your sourdough starter doesn't have to have an absolutely perfect microbial composition um, because you're going to bake the sourdough. That's a kill step. You killed off all the microbes. Mm -hmm. But fermented vegetables don't have that. So the only, the only things you can do to control what happens microscopically in that food is, you know, salt concentration, 
um, keeping things submerged with a fermentation weight and allowing for the proper amount of time. Yeah, wonderful. And following people such as yourself, of course. Mm-hmm. And we'll get to your socials and your blog as well for sure, for <laughs> very sure. soon. But I have a few more questions up my sleeve for you. And another big one that I've always thought about is, you know, it's easy to look at a package product and go, that's the best before date or that's the use by date. You know, it's past minute kind of thing. But how do we know if we're fermenting our own foods? How do we know when they start to become I guess, off for, you know, past that sort of safety, what would be safe to consume? Are there any sort of, um, I guess, like red flags or things you would look for in terms of when a food has, you know, maybe been in the fridge for too long or something? (laughs) For sure. Um, There's a lot of senses we can use, but I love this question because it kind of ties together uh, what we do as a fermentation company and then also instructing people how to do this themselves at home. So for our fermentation company, we have to do things like shelf life studies and that determines the use by date. The funny thing about fermented foods is that they don't exactly expire um, when made correctly. So they can last for almost two years in your fridge when they're made right. The thing that changes is the texture. So over time, um, for instance, we have a six month out from the date of manufacture use by date. And that just means in six months, the cabbage pieces in our sauerkraut, for instance, will start to soften because the microbes are they're metabolizing still um, very slowly in the refrigerator. But um, most of the time, the use-by dates on fermented foods like fermented vegetables are, are going to be more of a quality use-by date versus a safety use-by date. Mm-hmm. Um, for other fermented foods, things like tempeh, miso, um, those things will vary, but you can use your senses to to determine. Um, of course, you want to look for anything that looks like mold growing on the surface. Don't ever eat mold. A lot of people tell you things like, you can scrape it off. I do not advise. <laughs> <laughs> Noted. <laughs> Noted. But for smell, um, I think the sense of smell is going to be your most um, beneficial sense here. Um, smells to stay away from include things like a sewage smell, um, vomit smells, <laughs> acetone, alcohol, and sulfur. Um, these things indicate that something went wrong microscopically and that you have the wrong types of microbes producing these smells. Um, it's hilarious because while getting my degree in microbiology, I actually learned smell recognition of microbes. Wow. So I can I can like walk into the life sciences building at LSU, for instance, and I can tell what's culturing in an incubator based on the way it smells. Oh my goodness! <laughs> um, so you kind of like get these senses that you um, that you can really use in fermentation. Um, If anyone's brand new to fermenting, I would say don't ferment anything red because a good indicator that something went wrong is a bright pink color in something like a sauerkraut. Um, That indicates something called serratia has grown. It's the same stuff that grows in dirty bathtubs. Um, And that's not very common, but it can happen. Um, So I would say, you know, if you're new to fermenting, new to trying this at home, definitely use your sense of smell and then look for anything that that looks suspicious. If it looks like the the mold that grows on the surface of an old lemon or an old orange, don't eat it. Um, And if it smells off-putting, don't eat it. It should smell pleasantly sour, kind of like cabbage, kind of like a pickle, um, slightly earthy. And anything apart from that is probably not normal. Love it. (laughs) Now, um, I guess one of my favorite foods of all time, as I think I mentioned before, is like just a freshly baked sourdough, um, particularly with like olives and rosemary in it. Oh, my mouth's like watering at the moment. (laughs) Can you let our listeners know at home, um, 
common sourdough starter problems. I mean, that's sort of the first step. It's easy enough to, you know, put it into the dough and whack it in the oven and bake it, but it's really trying to get that first sourdough starter. What are some of those common problems that you see, um, I guess, beginners having and how do we fix them when we're attempting to make our own sourdoughs, which I will hopefully be doing very soon? (laughs) Yeah. So definitely um, the hardest part to getting uh, to baking sourdough is getting your sourdough starter nice and healthy. And so the most common issue people have that they contact me with is having a lifeless sourdough starter. So they'll say things like, it doesn't bubble. I mean, it bubbles, but it doesn't rise. So they're not seeing this um, beautiful time-lapse worthy expansion of the sourdough starter in the jar. You know, they want to see, they want to see it grow like you see in those beautiful pictures on the internet. Um, but when you're first establishing a sourdough starter, most recipes call for 100% hydration um, until about the eighth day of feeding and discarding your sourdough starter. So you won't see it expand and rise until you make the leaven the night before baking. Um, Usually that is of a less hydration than when you're first trying to establish good microbes. And so when it's not as hydrated, you can see your sourdough expand. But if you see bubbles in the first few days at all, or if you see little air pockets on the side of the jar, maybe it's not rising, but you do have um, yeast and carbon dioxide producing microbes in there for sure. Apart from that, people um, worry about maybe a colored liquid on the top of their sourdough starter. Um, that's called hooch. It's alcohol. And um, it's, it's normal in the fermentation process. And you can simply pour it off and then discard and feed your sourdough starters like normal. Um, we have a few sourdough starter blogs on our website and a troubleshooting blog too. So people can use that as a resource if they're having starter troubles. Wonderful. Love it. And then are you a fan of, again, putting like different things into your sourdoughs? As you mentioned, even just diversity in terms of fermented foods is so important as well. So not just doing the same, um, you know, type of sourdough every single time, but trying to put a few extra nuts and seeds and, you know, things like olives and herbs and that sort of thing in them as well, again, for that more diversity. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Since um, sourdough, you know, it takes a long time to rise. So, you know, some people are fermenting their sourdough loaves before baking for anywhere between 36 to 72 two hours um, and all this flavor develops, that's because the microbes are actively fermenting all the things you add in there. So yeah, I love things like um, a focaccia with uh, olives and rosemary and maybe some tomatoes. Um, I just made a sourdough loaf that incorporates pecans and cinnamon Mm. into it. And I surprised myself. It is quite delicious. <laughs> and I think adding something, you know, fatty with some protein in there, like like nuts, can add even more different beneficial compounds. So yeah, definitely um, mix things into your sourdough starter, um, not the starter, into your sourdough loaves if uh, you're feeling ambitious and like you want to switch things up a bit. Yeah, love it. And then finally, any kitchen must-haves for fermenting foods? I know you mentioned kitchen scale is absolutely vitally important. Anything else that you sort of think for those uh, beginner or experienced fermenters at home, um, products or different kitchen, I guess, appliances and, and that sort of thing that would help us out in our journey? Um, so generally people like to start with fermented vegetables and sourdough. That's like square one when you're getting started. Um, so yes, the kitchen scale is a must. You'll use that to weigh your, your produce and your salt for fermented vegetables. And then in sourdough, you can use that to weigh your flours, your water and your salt. Um, most sourdough starter recipes are written in grams. Um, so super functional kitchen equipment. 
Um, I would say high quality sea salt is important. Um, I actually just read a study uh, in a new textbook I got on the health benefits of fermented foods and uh, different salts have different, uh, what are they called? Trace minerals. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't really mean much for humans. Like we don't derive a lot of minerals from the trace minerals in sea salt, but for tiny microorganisms, it seems to make a difference. Um, so they studied using different kinds of salt, like celgree or pink Himalayan in fermentation. The results were slightly different. So if you can find a salt high in trace minerals, like a pink Himalayan or a celgree, um, solar evaporated sea salt, then, um, that's good. And then I'd say glass fermentation weights. So if you're going to do fermented vegetables, you definitely need to keep things anaerobic Mm -hmm. and you do that by just keeping all the vegetables submerged in the liquid. And then in the first couple days of fermentation, oxygen using microbes will use up all the oxygen in the liquid and you have an anaerobic environment. So you don't need, you know, fancy lids or special science equipment or anything really expensive. Um, you just need a few simple things and you can get started fermenting safely at home. Wonderful. That and patience, hey? <laughs> yes, and patience. That is a tool you need for sure. <laughs> and with the glass weights, do you have any, I guess, recommendations? Because that's definitely something that I don't have, so I'll probably look at picking up. Like is just getting them off Amazon or something or like your local sort of kitchen homeware store? I don't think most kitchen homeware stores carry them. Yeah, okay. um, it may be different where you are, but uh, Amazon works. They have a bunch of different brands. Um, some of them even come with a little handle on top that looks like a little knob, so it makes them easy to pull out of the jar. Mm-hmm. Some are just smooth and flat. Um, they come in various package sizes and price ranges. Um, I just suggest glass over ceramic. Mm-hmm. Um, ceramic's an option, but microbes will dwell in the crevices of ceramic, and sometimes you can't always get that clean. So glass weights for sure. Yeah. Love it. Great tip. And then lastly, again, I'd love for you to tell our listeners, you have some exciting things um, that you and your husband are sort of working on um, that are set to be released soon. So I'd love to for you to tell our listeners a little bit more about that exciting new project, but also where we can um, reach out to you and particularly follow you on social media and your blog as well, which is wonderful. <laughs> Absolutely. So our blog is just culture.guru. Um, that's our website. There's no.com, um, just culture.guru. And then our Instagram is at culture.guru. Uh, that's the easiest place to connect with us. If you want a quick response from me or want to ask me a fermentation question, just message us on Instagram. Um, and our email is just simply info at culture.guru. Uh, So the special project we're working on, um, we're kind of really exploring the education side of our business. That's our roots. That's how we got started. Um, We started as a blog and then kind of morphed into a fermented foods business to pay the bills. Um, And now we're kind of headed back home to our roots, which is educating people about fermentation. And we are launching Fermentation School in January. And that is going to be an online uh, educational course all about the ins and outs of fermentation. We're going to cover everything between the history, the microbes involved, safety protocols, um, defined recipes, and then... The subject matter will be sauerkrauts and kimchi, vine growing vegetables, root vegetables, um, fermenting beans and legumes, yogurts, kefirs, sourdough, 
uh, we're going to cover it all. So it's going to be an exciting course. And uh, I really can't wait to launch it in January. That sounds wonderful. And I, I think I will have to join you as well, because I still think <laughs> I do have that little bit of fear around me just being like, I wouldn't have any idea how to make like a fermented yogurt or something. So I think having <laughs> you as an expert would be amazing. So please um, do let me know when that sort of becomes available. And I'll have to share that for my um, for my tribe as well, because I'm sure there'll be so many people that are interested. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Caitlin, for coming on. It's been a, it's been an amazing, enlightening chat all about our microbes and how we can learn to nourish them and um, some safety precautions as well when we're fermenting foods, which I think is really, really important. Um, so thank you so much for sharing all of your expertise with our listeners as well. Yes, thank you for inviting me. Happy to be here and um, can't wait to listen to the podcast once it's available. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you again. And listeners, um, we will catch you next week in our next podcast.